The title of my sermon this morning is How to Avoid Wasting Your Life and Being Destroyed by God at the End of It. And I am aware that that's not really the cushiest of titles uh, for sermons, and, and it may be a bit unsettling, but hopefully it, it at least grabs your attention. It is a practical title, and it is based on the text. See, in, in verse 18, Paul wrote a, a sobering and an undeniable truth that makes the title particularly relevant and urgent. Paul gave two commands in verse 17, but then in in verses 18 and 19, he gave reasons why. And if you look closely at verses 18 and 19, they are a bit unsettling. Many people, some very pleasant and agreeable people, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and are headed toward eternal destruction. And God is the one who will destroy them. That's reality, and that's chilling to think about. But we need to think about it. We need to think about it because it's true. This is a serious message. This is an urgent message from God through the Apostle Paul, but also a very beautiful and very glorious one if you have eyes to see it. Wasting your life has everlasting bad consequences. So God is being so gracious, he's being so loving by explaining for us how not to waste our lives how to avoid his destruction. He hasn't been silent on this. So if you're a bit unnerved at some of what we talk about today, I think that's good uh, because hopefully it instills in you the fear of God and joy and gratitude for the extravagant love that God has for you. So I want to draw seven simple points from the text that are very practical And that will help to guard you from wasting your life and being destroyed by God at the end of it. But it will also work for your greater joy and your greater pleasure in God. So here's how to avoid wasting your life and being destroyed by God at the end of it. Number one, imitate people who meticulously imitate Christ. Imitate people who meticulously imitate Christ. Again, Paul affectionately addressed the Philippians as brothers. They were family in the fullest sense of that term. Paul said, verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. Now, Paul used a a unique Greek word there. It's the only place that it appears in Scripture. And to my knowledge, it doesn't appear in any Greek literature, ancient Greek literature. So some think that Paul just made this word up, and, and he might have. Simimetes, simimetes, uh, a compound word of soon, which means with, and mimetes, which means imitator. So Paul wanted the Philippians to be co-imitators of him. Now, notice that Paul didn't say, join me in imitating Christ, though that would have been right. He was actually humbly putting himself forward as the example to follow. Certainly, it was Christ at work in him producing something to imitate, but the Philippians needed a visual model. They they needed to look at Christ's likeness, and they saw that in Paul. Now, we don't have time, but if you would start at the beginning of Philippians and you would retrace this letter up to this point, we'd see how much of an example Paul really was for the Philippians, really for the church at large. 
Here's just one instance from chapter 1, verse 26, where Paul said this, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. He wanted the Philippians to see in him a living example of Christ. He wanted them to see Christ at work in him for the purpose of leading them to glory in Christ Jesus. If you read Paul fairly, you see he's not being arrogant. He's being a spiritual leader. Paul admitted his imperfection. He admitted that readily. Yet he showed them practically the power of God's grace through his consistent and unwavering imitation of Christ. He was their exemplar. He he told the Corinthians, he told the Thessalonians, he told Timothy all to imitate him. And I think that 1 Corinthians 11.1 captures the essence of what Paul meant. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Do you see that? That's an important part of it. See, by imitating Paul, they would be imitating Christ who was at work in Paul. Do you understand that? So when I say in this first point, imitate the people who meticulously imitate Christ, I mean people like Paul. People who give fanatical attention and care to honoring Christ in absolutely everything, even in the the little small things that we might think are small. Back in 1948, Billy Graham uh, made a rule for himself never to meet, eat, or travel with a woman other than his wife. And he did that to protect himself, but he also did that to remove any potential doubt that people may have. And some hear that and they think, man, he's excessive. Come on. That's going too far. Even Jesus didn't do that. And they have all these reasons. But you know, as I think about that, I think Billy displayed a meticulous desire to honor Christ in that way. The way to avoid wasting your life and being destroyed by God at the end of it is by imitating Paul. Imitating Paul and people just like Paul. Who do you know? Who is a part of your life that is meticulous in every little detail to honor Christ? Be like them. Imitate them. It it will benefit you to imitate people like Paul. They will be imperfect. You will see things that aren't quite right. But oh, the benefits. And there are lots of people out there walking with Christ that are worthy to imitate. Number two, closely observe faithful followers of Jesus. Closely observe faithful followers of Jesus. Verse 17 again. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul, Timothy. Epaphroditus and Paul's other co-workers gave the church at large a Christ-like example to follow. They showed them what it was. And people imitated their example. And Paul knew their example would greatly encourage and strengthen the church. So, So hear this. Paul was not the only one worth imitating. Pastors and church planners and seminary professors and missionaries are not the only Christians worthy of imitation. All across the world, there are very ordinary and not famous people 
walking with Jesus that are very worth imitating. You might not even know their story, or you might because they're in your life. Spirit-filled imitation of Christ. The Philippians were surrounded by bad examples. They needed encouragement. They needed to be reminded to fix their eyes on the good examples, the the people walking with Christ, people who were serious about Jesus and serious about living a life worthy of the gospel. Do you know that peer pressure is not necessarily a bad thing? There is something such as positive peer pressure. Positive peer pressure. The difference is, who are your peers and what are they pressuring you to? Paul knew the power. Paul knew the influence of positive peer pressure within the church. And he knew it would guard the Philippians from wasting their lives and being destroyed by God at the end of it. Keeping your eyes fixed on genuine and mature Christians. Well, that takes time. That takes effort. That takes sacrifice. But, my friends, so worth it. So worth it because you gain so much from those people. You gain so much. Here's a little help for you. Look for people who take the Bible very seriously. Look for people who pray fervently, who exude the the fruit of the Spirit, who share the gospel who disciple others, who grieve with joy. Look for humble people who confess their sin openly and their continual need of God's grace. Look for people who who are genuinely happy in God, even when life is completely out of control. Find those people, watch those people, and imitate those people. You won't waste your life if you do that. Now, it seems like many Christians don't really care much about imitating mature Christians. They'd rather imitate sports stars, they'd rather imitate celebrities, or they'd rather imitate the culture. Many Christians invest little time into being discipled by mature Christians. And you know what? It shows in their life. It shows in their life. Too many Christians fail to see how their non-committal and elusive interaction with a local church cuts them off from significant relationships with mature believers. And where are the mature believers found? But in the local church. It takes commitment. It takes work. It takes time. It takes energy to invest in those close relationships with mature believers. But you know, it is actually a mark of maturity. Proverbs 13, 20, it's right, so simple. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. So who are you closely observing and walking with? So if you're like, this is new, I'm going to give you easy help right here. Five quick things. Number one, keep your eyes on Jesus in Scripture and imitate him right there. Number two, keep your eyes on faithful people in Scripture and imitate them. Number three, keep your eyes on faithful people from church history and imitate them. Number four, keep your eyes on faithful people that you don't know, like Christian authors and speakers and missionaries or video testimonies that you might say, and imitate them. And the fifth one, keep your eyes on faithful followers of Jesus that God has placed right in front of you in this church 
in other local churches, in your family, uh, faithful moms and dads, uh, faithful college students, um, faithful sick people. Imitate them. Imitate them. Find people like Paul. Find people like Timothy. Find people like Epaphroditus and watch them and learn from them. You will never regret closely observing the lives of faithful followers of Christ. The encouragement, the strength, the the protection and accountability that they can give is just invaluable. Uh, It's too good to pass up. You don't want to miss out on that. Number three, beware of the influence of enemies of the cross. Verses 18 and 19 are the rationale behind verse 17. Paul gives two commands in verse 17 and then explains the why. For, he says, or because many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Verse 17 is so important to follow because the influence of a bad example is powerful. Paul likely had the Judaizers in mind who who were the guys who were inside the church polluting the gospel by adding works to grace and salvation. So he likely has those, those guys in mind, but enemies of the cross were broader, I think, and he was also referring to the culture of Philippi, I think, And enemies of the cross, if you think about it, are both outside the church and they're actually inside the church as well. And be sure of this, bad company ruins good morals. With weeping angst, Paul told them again. His tears were urgent. His tears were sobering and grievous and compassionate. And verse 19 shows why Paul was so concerned. It shows why there's urgency behind this. Notice five truths from verse 19 about the enemies of the cross, each which explain why verse 17 is so important. Number one, their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. Years ago, Tom Hanks starred in a movie called Road to Perdition. Um, That's kind of Paul's point here. All enemies of the cross are on a road to perdition. Several years ago, I needed to burn some trash. And uh, before lighting it, I sprinkled a little bit of gas on it uh, just to help it along. I knew better. And when I threw the match into the 55-gallon drum of gas-drizzled trash, boom! I mean, it, it went. And it missed my face, which was a good thing. But, it, but I must say it was pretty close. It was pretty close. Toss, tossing a match into gas will always have the same end. Boom! It's going to blow. And so if you're in the way, you're going to get burned. You're going to get burned. Paul is talking about eternal destruction. Enemies of the cross of Christ will not escape God's destruction. The Greek word here is apoleia, which Paul used back in chapter 1, verse 28, which says this. Pay careful attention to this. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. 
and that from God. See, Paul contrasted destruction with salvation. So destruction is the opposite of salvation. Destruction is eternal perishing, whereas salvation is eternal living. Jesus talked about the easy way that leads to destruction. 2 Peter 3 links the day of judgment with the destruction of the ungodly. 2 Thessalonians 1 talks about people who don't know God and people who don't obey the gospel of Christ suffering punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Hear me. Eternal destruction is inevitable for enemies of the cross of Christ. And it's not annihilation. It's not extinction. It's never ceasing and never ending conscious punishment of eternal perdition. And we know from scripture that it is God who destroys. Now, when you hear that, that might shock you. But it's true. At the Passover in Exodus 12, 23, God was the destroyer who went through out Egypt killing the firstborn. Psalm 145, verse 20 says, The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. James 4, 12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. God is the destroyer. Do you realize, my friends, that God's destruction of the wicked in hell will never end? Psalm 92, 7 says they are doomed to destruction forever. And because, think about this carefully, and because God is just and good, he cannot ignore wickedness but is bound by his divine justice and goodness to destroy all enemies of the cross. God must destroy, or he is not just, and he is not good. Truth number two, their God is their belly. Their stomach guides them. They are enslaved to their own appetites. Their corrupted body rules them like a tyrannical dictator. Paul is likely referring to gluttony here. But I also think he may have sexual immorality in mind as well. See, the word is literally stomach, uh, but can also be taken figuratively for desires. Dr. Dennis Johnson thinks Paul is referring to physical appetites, not only food and drink, but also sexual desire, leisure, and all the perks of affluent living. Do we need to hear that as Americans? So I think it's safe to assume that Paul is speaking of carnal bodily desires and appetites, whether food or sex or whatever, they worship and serve their carnal appetites. Truth number three, they glory in their shame. To glory is to not only approve something, but to take pleasure in it, to pay tribute to it. Enemies of the cross love their shameful lifestyle. This word for shame can mean sexual immorality, as it does in Romans 1.27 and, and Revelation 3.18. We know what this is like. We know what it's like to live in a culture which approves and celebrates sexual sin. It appears like almost at every turn you look. Now, you've probably heard of the site Ashley Madison, the online dating service aimed at married people. 
It's the world's largest social networking community of its kind created to help people commit adultery. Their tagline used to be this, life is short, have an affair. They glory in their shame. The Modern Family, which no doubt some of you have seen, is a sitcom on ABC, and the problems with the show are many, but it showcases a same-sex married couple with an adopted daughter. 20 years ago, homosexuality was largely taboo in America, and no country on planet Earth permitted homosexual marriage. 20 years ago, less Now it's permitted and it's celebrated in America and several other countries. They glory in their shame. What is locker room talk but glorying in their shame? Romans 1.31 is spot on. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Everyone sins. That's not what we're talking about here. Everyone sins. That's not the point. The issue is enemies of the cross of Christ approve and celebrate sin. Instead of acknowledging their shame, repenting of their shame, trusting in Christ to remove their shame, they glory and gloat themselves in their shame. Truth number four. They set their minds on earthly things. The majority of people in the world obsess about earthly and meaningless things and patently ignore and trivialize God. That was true in the first century uh, Philippi as well. Sometimes when I'm in the car and I'm driving around, I'm one of those station flip guys that goes through and, oh, I like that song, so I'll keep it. And so sometimes in the mornings, I'll catch Elvis Duran on FM 97 for a few minutes And it's striking how empty and trivial the conversation is. Now, I'll admit the show can be entertaining, okay? But the pettiness of the show is palpable because the entire show is void of anything of eternal value and worth. The world has set its face toward the mecca of materialism, naturalism, secularism, and utter godlessness. Enemies of the cross of Christ glory in their shame because they have set their minds on earthly things. And they have prioritized the temporal over the eternal. James classified earthly wisdom as unspiritual and demonic demonic. John wrote in his first epistle not to love the world or the things in the world, and that if we do love the world and the things in the world, the love of the Father is not in us. He said the world is passing away along with its desires, so if you get on that train, you will also pass away and be destroyed. Paul taught the Romans that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and to set the mind on the flesh is death. He told them, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Lastly, number five, they are not citizens of heaven. Paul uh, said in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And he's implying that the enemies of the cross are not citizens of heaven. 
Look, enemies of the cross of Christ are often likable and pleasant people. It's not just the bitter old crotchety... They're very likable. They're very pleasant. They're even oftentimes very spiritual people, but they are lost in idolatry and destined for destruction. And we must be aware of their influence and our propensity to conform to their lifestyle, to conform to the world. If you want to waste your life, if you are aiming to be destroyed by God at the end of your life, just be like everybody else. Just blend in. Just try to be popular with the masses. Do what everybody else does and don't ask questions. Then you'll be destroyed. Then you'll completely waste your life. But you see, citizens of heaven, they don't want to do that. They don't want what everybody else has and does. They're of a different kingdom. Number four, set your minds, dear friends, on heavenly things, not on earthly things. This is the opposite of what enemies of the cross do. Citizens of heaven strive to have one mind, the mind of Christ, as Paul addressed earlier. Citizens of heaven set their minds on eternal things. Colossians 3, 1 through 5, reinforces this practice. It's a very common thing in the life of Christians. Listen carefully. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why set our minds on heavenly things? Why? Because we have died with Christ. And our life is now hidden with Christ in God. We belong to another kingdom. And our interests are there. Our interests are not primarily here. Our glory is coming. It's on its way. Therefore, our thoughts are there. Are there. Not that we ignore the necessary things here on earth. I'm not saying to detach from the culture. I don't think that's, that's Paul's point at all. But as we live this life, we must fix our eyes on Christ who is at work in the here and now. Why set our minds on heavenly things? Because as Colossians 3, 4 says, we will appear with Christ in stunning glory. We avoid God's destruction. Absolutely, praise God. But more than that, we will appear with him in glory. Why obsess about things that are going to be quickly destroyed? Why not obsess about things that will last forever? Doesn't that make sense? Fix your mind on God. Fix your mind on heaven. Fix your mind on eternal life. Fix your mind on everlasting joy. It's easy to forget where our citizenship is, where our home really is. That brings us to number five, understand your citizenship in heaven. You won't waste your life. You won't be destroyed by God at the end of it if you live as a citizen of heaven. Plain and simple, by God's amazing grace, through Jesus Christ alone, you have been made a citizen of heaven. Your faith is evidence that you belong in heaven. You belong in that celestial city 
because God made a place for you there. And in time, you will happily enter those city gates to flourish forever beneath the reign and rule of your master. All of the rights and privileges of the celestial kingdom are yours in full. You have them now. And they are coming in full. For now, this is your home, though. It's my home. God wants us here. God has a purpose for us here. But because your citizenship is in heaven and not here, you are not yet home, which makes you ambassadors of Christ. See, God made you a diplomatic agent placed in this foreign territory for a time to represent your home country well, which is heaven, and to represent your sovereign well, which is Christ. This is a temporary diplomatic assignment. So we have to live with our, our, our celestial citizenship in mind, and then we won't waste our lives. Living as a citizen here, that's the road to perdition. Your citizenship is in heaven, and that's got to dictate your lifestyle, how you live. John Adams was the first American ambassador to Great Britain. Imagine that job. Man, alive. Adams was a citizen of America, no longer a citizen of England, and his American citizenship defined how he lived and how he interacted with Great Britain. Do you remember chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ? Another way to translate that, and a good way to translate it, actually, this is accurate, would be this. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. The connection there for Paul was very intentional. Philippi was a Roman colony beneath the reign of Caesar, and citizens of Philippi were citizens of Rome. They didn't live in Rome, but they were, they were citizens of Rome nonetheless. The rights and privileges of Roman citizenship belonged to the Philippians. It was theirs in full, which was very noteworthy at the time. And Paul used that to point them beyond Rome to a celestial city with a superior citizenship. Yes, they were citizens of distant Rome. That, that, was a, that was an amazing privilege at the time. But their utmost privilege was beyond Rome in heaven where God lives and rules and reigns in the fullness of his eternal glory. Your union with Christ makes you a citizen of heaven. Never forget who you are in Christ and where you belong. Here's a sixth practical point. Eagerly await the return of your Savior. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first century, the coins in Greek-speaking areas displayed an image of Caesar and the words Savior and Lord. Caesar Augustus, actual historical figure, was hailed the Savior of the world and Lord, not Jesus Christ. And yet God highly exalted Jesus, not Caesar. And Jesus is the Lord who truly saved. Savior means Jesus rescues us. Lord means Jesus rules us. Christ means Jesus has been anointed and appointed by God to rescue and rule us. They even gave him the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. It is this Jesus who stirs in us 
this great joyful anticipation, this expectation. He will return from heaven. He will fully and finally rescue us and take us home. We wait for him to come for us, and he will, as the world falls apart around us, as, our, as death continues to just do massive destruction, Christ has not forgotten us. And Christ has not forgotten the promise that he made us, and Christ will honor every last thing that he said. And if you jump to verse 21, you see that Jesus has the power to subject all things to himself. He is actively using his universal power to bring everything beneath his sovereign reign. Everything. He is subordinating everything to himself, and he's soon finished He does it because God has given him supremacy. He does it because God has given him authority over all things. This term await is is this eager expectation, this confident anticipation of Christ's return. Do do you know that feeling that you get when this long-awaited vacation is now just a few days away? And, And you just start getting antsy, and you have menial tasks to do at work and things, But this vacation is putting a bounce in your step because you're like, it's almost here. And you're doing the things that some days you're just like, now you're like, da-da, the vacation, straightening up stuff. You're doing it all because it feels great. Folks, the return of our Savior is exciting. Amen? Come on. Yes. Yes, it's exciting. But, you know, it's not really that exciting If our minds are set on earthly things, because, or not because Jesus is less exciting, but because earthly things blind us to his exciting nature. It's hard to waste your life when you're so excited for Jesus to come back. It's just hard to waste your life. When this king is going to return soon, last point, number seven, eagerly await the tremendous transformation of your body. Eagerly await the uh, tremendous transformation of your body. When Jesus returns, he will transform our lowly body into or to be like his glorious body. And what a transformation this will be. The transformation will be a total body makeover, and that's great news for everyone over the age of 30. And for those of you who are under 30, it's great news for you, but you don't feel it like we do. You don't feel it, but you will. Oh, you will. You will. It's great news for everybody. It's great news because our bodies are lowly. Our bodies are corrupted. Our bodies are susceptible to disease and frailty and sin, but the resurrection will usher in a transformation so glorious our bodies will actually become like the the amazing resurrected body of Christ. Man, this is a good deal. We will be perfectly beautiful. We we will be perfectly powerful. We will be perfectly stunning. Dr. G. Walter Hansen said this, we will have perfect health and unlimited energy through the constant rejuvenation of the spirit. Think about that. Perfect health, unlimited energy, constant rejuvenation by the spirit. That's spectacular. I'm spitting a lot. I'm sorry. Hopefully it doesn't get on the communion stuff. But you'd eat it anyway, right? Come on. 
all right, all right, stay with it. Sounds spectacular. That sounds amazing. I'll take it. Sign me up. That's what I want. Because this just is it's not great. Now, how is Jesus going to do that for us with the supreme and absolute power that enables him to subject everything to himself? Do you think that death will beat us? Are you kidding? Scripture says that we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Scripture says that our mortal body will put on immortality. Absolutely incredible and entirely true. If you take away Christ, if you take away the resurrection, if you take away Christ's transformation of our body, what hope do we have in this life when our bodies are falling apart? Bruce, Ivy, Judy have cancer. Denise has frequent migraines. Kathy, Merle, and Claire have ongoing back pain. Sylvia has ongoing leg pain. We could keep going. Influenza, fatigue, pneumonia, indigestion, dementia, Alzheimer's, strains, sprains, bruises, brokenness, hospitalizations, not to mention all of the struggle with fear and anxiety that surrounds all of us when we face all of these things. My friends, do not long for the days of your youth. Long for the day when your Savior, Jesus Christ, will transform your body to be like His body. The next time you get sick, long for your transformation. The next time you're in the hospital, long for your transformation. The next time you get depressed about the frailty of your body and what you can't do, long for your glorious transformation. It's almost here. It's almost here. So there you have it. Seven simple, practical points from the text that will guard you from wasting your life. And being destroyed by God at the end of it. But, as I close, if your primary motivation in doing these things is to escape the destruction of God, you haven't yet understood what we're saying. See, each of these seven things is intended to lead you into greater joy in God. Do these things because you want to glorify and enjoy God. Today's title is appropriate. But all of the points, these seven points, tell you how to rightly spend your life to glorify and enjoy God. Do it all to be happy in God. God, we thank you for your incredible grace. And as we take the Lord's Supper together, we are reminded that that his body was crushed. He was wasted by your wrath, beaten and broken down. But he has conquered and he has come back to life. And so all of the incredible things about his body, we're going to have his likeness. And so God, as we take this remembering his great sacrifice for us. I pray that we do not cry tears because he died and that we're grieved by that, but we cry tears of joy because he died and he conquered death. 
and that he will come back and he will make us like him. Amen.